All right, take your Bibles and follow as I read Psalm 103 in its entirety. Here we go. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. I'm not sure you know the story um, that's contained in the book of Esther. Does that ring a bell? It's a great story. It's a it's a ten chapter story, and it's just full of intrigue and, and interest. Uh, and we don't have time to tell the whole story, but I, I did want to tell you just one little sliver of that story that's contained in the book of Esther. The king uh, in this book is a guy by the name of Ahasuerus. Uh, history calls him Xerxes. He was uh, his capital was in Susa. And uh, on one occasion, he, had, well, he has a subject in his kingdom who is a Jewish leader whose name is Mordecai. And on one occasion, Mordecai is standing at the city gate and he o- overhears two men who are discussing a plot to assassinate and overthrow the king Xerxes. Mordecai then takes that information to the, to the right authorities, tells them what's going on. They investigate it find out that it is true, they arrest the two guys and execute them. Several months later, um, the king one night can't sleep. And uh, so he calls in his couriers and he says, um, would you read to me, you know, just in his insomnia, he just wants to have somebody read to him from what is called the book of memorable events. So they're reading from this book, trying to get him to, you know, to go to sleep. And, and they come to this event about Mordecai uh, and the two guys that wanted to assassinate him. 
So they read that story and the king stops them and says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, what did we ever do for those guys who, um, what did we ever do to that guy who, who brought us the information that ultimately saved my life? What did we ever do for him? His courier said, well, king, you know, um, we didn't do anything. He said, we didn't do anything. So then they start figuring out how, how they can, how they can repay, how they can express gratitude to Mordecai who ultimately saved his life. You know, guys, that little story um, faces us with an all-too-frequent human failing. It's called ingratitude. You know, how do you forget to thank somebody who saved your life? How does that happen? Well, maybe he's a king. He's so self-absorbed that he just didn't give it another thought. I, I don't know how you forget to be grateful, but he did. And we do, don't we? And so the king says, we got to figure out a plan. we got to figure out something as to how we can thank this guy, Mordecai, who saved my life. I tell you that story, guys, because Psalm 103 is a psalm that, that faces us with the issue of our own ingratitude. And it says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not any of his benefits. You know what we did? (laughs) We forgot his benefits. You know, um, there's a lot of ways to motivate people. Um, You can motivate them uh, with guilt. It'll work a little bit. And you can motivate them with fear. And, And the Bible uses both of those on occasion. But primarily, the, 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 the approach that the Bible uses to motivate people to do what they should have done in the first place is beauty. Let me explain. Um, Philip Yancey tells a story. You know the name Philip Yancey? He's written, oh gosh, six or seven books, and I try to read every one he writes. It's, but this comes out of his book, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace. If you've never read it, you ought to get it. It's, it's a great read. But he tells a story about one summer that he had to um, learn German, the language. He had to learn the German language to finish up his doctoral degree. And, and he said it was a beautiful summer in Chicago, and all my friends were sailing on Lake Michigan, and, and I was stuck in my apartment with a German tutor for three hours a night, five nights a week. It was miserable. Because I had to learn German. And he, in that process, he, he began to think, um, I wonder if the professor were to tell me, now, now, Philip, uh, you're going to get an A anyway. It didn't make any difference what you do. I don't care what you do. We're going to give you an A. So uh, he said, do you think that I would have studied German that summer? He said, heck no. I'd have been out on the lake with my friend sailing. He said, um, you know, it's a good thing to learn a foreign language, but what would make me, what would really motivate me to learn German. He said, I can only think of one possible circumstance. 
And that was, if my wife, the woman that I fell in love with, if she only spoke German, I'd have learned German in record time. Do you see the point, ladies and gentlemen? The, the thing that will motivate you the best is beauty. When the heart is captured by beauty, the heart will change. Now, you know, it'll change temporarily if you guilt it <laughs> or if you scare it. But the, but the motive that is most frequently used in the Bible to change God's people is to captivate them with beauty. And I'm suggesting that is the approach that is used by the psalmist in Psalm 103. Instead of trying to guilt us into gratitude, instead of trying to um, scare us, if you don't do this, bad things are going to happen. Instead of using those approaches... What the psalmist does is try to captivate the minds and the hearts of God's people through beauty. And I want to show you what what, what I'm talking about. A a couple of three ways. I'm sure there's several others in this psalm, but I I just want to isolate three that is a, that is a a kind of a, a general over, just a, Picture a snapshot of who God is. A couple of three things. Let me show them to you. First of all, I want you to look at verses 13 and 14. I want to show you what I'm calling fatherly concern, fatherly compassion. He says in verse 13 and 14, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Now, guys, every time uh, somebody like me raises the term father, a whole lot of issues come tumbling in. Like, um, well, Dr. Young, you know, my father was such a bad father, um, such an abusive man. It's hard for me to perceive and conceive of God as a father. Now, guys, um, a lot of us had poor fathers, including my three daughters, but but none of that, I don't think, prevents us from, from at least conceiving of what the beauty of fatherhood should look like. Or we might have had bad examples before, but we can at least picture what a good father looks like. Another another thing that seems to arise is the, the whole idea of if, if you call him father, does that mean that God is a male deity? And that's kind of a politically correct kind of thing, you know. A male deity I can't relate to. Well, guys... I can I can tell you this. Uh, every time Jesus talks to him, he calls him father. Except one time. There's one time that Jesus doesn't call him father, and that's when he's on the cross and he says, "My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken?" Every other time, he calls him father. But that same Jesus describes himself as a hen. He says, "You know, as a hen would gather her chicks." So, you know. I'll tell you one other thing. This word that you find in verse 13. As a father's compassion. Do you see that? That Hebrew word is found two other times in the Old Testament. That word for compassion is found two other times. One time is found in Isaiah 49. Let me read it to you. Can a woman forget her nursing child? 
that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. There's the word. I'll tell you the other place it's found. It's found in 1 Kings 3. And you know this story. It's when Solomon was the king and those two women came to him and they had the one live child and they were both saying, this is my child and, and um, you know, she killed hers. And, and Solomon doesn't know how to figure out. He said, well, okay, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We'll just chop him in half and you can have that. And the, and the real mother comes forward and, and the text says that she, she, with compassion, she says, no, 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 give the child to her. And Solomon says, well, well you're the real mother. But my point is this, guys. In both of those instances, the, that term that you find here for compassion is describing not a father's love, but a mother's love. You see, guys, the point I'm making is when it says a father shows compassion, the issue is not whether it's a male deity or otherwise. What it's talking about is a deep, visceral compassion that a parent has for its children. As a father shows compassion to his children. And then it goes on to broaden the image by saying, uh, we're told in verse 14, um, why he has such compassion for his children. He says, because he knows their frame. He remembers that they are dust. Is that not beautiful? He knows I'm a, he knows I'm a wreck. He knows that I'm flawed and broken. You know, guys, I, I have three girls, three daughters, and I now have eight grandchildren. And at no time with our three girls did I ever expect flawless behavior, perfect decision making, impeccable manners. Why? Well, because I knew a bit, just a bit, about their frame. Even us, even we below average fathers, we know that stuff happens. I remember something that took place, and, and my kids, they still chide me over this. Um, it was when they were all three in grade school, and I took them to school every morning. And so here we are in the car on the way to school, and all three girls are in there, and, and on this particular day... Um, all three of my daughters, all three of them had forgotten their lunches and I blew up and I, the, you know, I looked over my shoulder and I'm driving them out and I, and, and I said this, <laughs> how old are you girls? And, and to this day, when we're in a kind of a happy setting, <laughs> one of them will say, how old are you girls? They still remember that, that outburst of mine. But, but my point is this, ladies and gentlemen, God never looks at my failings and says, how old are you, you idiot? The, the, the text says, he knows my frame. He has deep, visceral compassion for me because he knows my frame. And he remembers that I'm dust. One more thought. Add this. Parents, if you've got three or four kids, like so many of you here at Gracie Van, and out of those, let's just say three kids, one of them is less gifted than the other two, tell me, Mom and Dad, which one of the three gets the most tenderness from you? 
or the most attention, the most time, the most sympathy. Isn't the one that's, isn't it the one that's the least gifted? I bet it is. And this text is suggesting that to the weak and unwise, stumbling, bumbling child on me, on me the Father has compassion. And the more broken I am, the more compassion I get. Is that not beautiful to you? The second thing I want you to see in the text has to do with a kind of a, a corrective or what I'm calling a measured chastisement. Look at verses 8 through 10. He says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. Now, folks, I want you to notice that that text does not say that God never gets angry. It, he, it does say that he gets angry. But his anger's not like mine. Um, when I'm angry, I try to get even. In, in parenting, we brutalize because we can. We, we vent because we're bigger. But, but though God is angry, his chastisement is corrective. That is, he, he, he doesn't repay me according to what I deserve. He designs a plan that is corrective, that is, that is designed to seek my good. You know, I, I wish I could say that about my parenting skills. I wish I could say that every time I disciplined one of those girls, that I did so knowing that I was seeking their ultimate good. But at times, folks, I wasn't seeking their good. I was seeking mine. I, I wanted to hurt back. How could you do such a thing after all I've done for you? Give us up that. I remember on another one of the uh, events out of the X-Files of my parenting, um, my girls, all three of them, had forgotten Mother's Day. Not a one of them had done one doodly squatting thing for their mother. And I took them out on the back porch, and I'm telling you, I let them have it. How could you do that when she's done so much for you? Well, that's not, that's not pursuing their good. It's pursuing mine. But, but listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. I've said this before and I say it again. The opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. You know what that means? That means that parents who have no anger, they don't love. Lovers get angry. Loving parents get angry. And yet parents with too much anger... They destroy. What we're seeing in this statement is that God's anger is not too hot. It's not too cold. It's just right. Wouldn't you love to be a parent like that? It'll never happen. <laughs> I'll never be able to, to love like that or, 
or parent like that or discipline like that. But what the text tells you is that you do have one parent like that. Yahweh. And his goal is not to get even. His goal is to use his chastisement so that you and I will improve. So that you and I might avoid those things that will ultimately hurt us. You know, ladies and gentlemen, do you know why God says something about monogamy? You know what monogamy is? It means that you love one woman. You know why? You know why God issues such a mandate? Because that's the way that's best for us. Is that not beautiful? One of the things he mentions in this psalm is a is a relational permanence. It's in verses 15 through 17. He says, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it's gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Look at that verse 15 and 16. That's a bummer, isn't it? A man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower and poof, there he's gone. I mean, just a, the wind blows over it and boy, it's gone and nobody knows its place anymore. It's, it's forgotten. It's done. That's a bummer, isn't it? Oh, but Jimmy, you know, I made a lot of money. Poof. Oh, but Jimmy, Jimmy, uh, you know, I won beauty contests and I can still get into a size five dress. Poof. Yeah, but Jimmy, you know, I, I owned a lot of businesses. Poof. Do you know that when I graduated from high school in 1966, that I was selected to be a part of the all-Memphis baseball team? You know, back then, we didn't have best of preps. What we had is, what they did, they took the whole region, the whole Shelby County and even beyond that region, and as far as baseball, they, they selected the best center fielder and the best first baseman and the best shortstop. And they said they selected the best catcher in the whole region. You know who that was? That was me. And you know who remembers that? Me. <laughs> Poof. Oh, but ladies and gentlemen, don't despair because we have a permanent place and our permanent place is in the steadfast love of the Lord that is from everlasting to everlasting. My permanent worth, my permanent home is that I am in union with Jesus Christ. And I can no more cease to exist than Christ can cease to exist because I am His and He is mine. Is that not beautiful to you? Let me, let me close.
I want to do one more thing. Do you remember how we started this sermon? Do you remember I told you about the story from the book of Esther about the king who forgot to do something nice for Mordecai? Well, the point of Psalm 103 is to call us not to make the same mistake that was made by that king. And so in Psalm 103, David, in somewhat of a soliloquy, speaks to himself. He steps forward to the the center of the stage with the spotlight right on him. And he speaks to himself and he says, now listen, soul. I don't want you to forget any of the benefits that have been yours because of what God has done for you. And you know why he does that, ladies and gentlemen? Because he knows that that our souls slumber. He knows that the soul needs instruction. And so he steps forward and he speaks to himself and he says, Now listen, soul, wake up down there and don't forget any of his benefits. And then he calls us to do something. You know what he calls us to do? He calls us to praise. He calls us to bless, which is really, in some of your translation, it is translated praise. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul. It's in verse 1 and 2. And um, all that is within me. I'll, I'll tell you this, this just to show you what a smart guy I am. The, the Hebrew verb that's translated bless is in the PL. <laughs> I know that means a lot to you. I know that moves you greatly. But in the Hebrew language, the PL is the, is the tense of intensity. It intensifies the verb. It doesn't simply say bless the Lord. It says bless the Lord. And all, all, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. So ladies and gentlemen, what I'm I'm suggesting is this. In light of his fatherly compassion, and in light of his measured chastisement, and in light of his relational, our relational permanence, there's only one right response to that. Praise. Praise verbally. And praise that comes about in a life that's lived such that God is praised because of that life that is lived so honorably. And I want to suggest to you, my brother and sister in Christ, that 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 will occur. That will occur when I am struck with the beauty of God as is seen in all that Jesus Christ is and all that he has done. When you, when you listen to, you remember the, the time where the people gathered to try and trip Jesus up and, and they, they bring a coin and, uh, and they say, I mean, no, no, they, they, they ask him the question. They say, um, are we supposed to pay tithes to Caesar? And he says, give me a coin. And so they bring him a coin and he says, whose inscription on? And every time I read that story, I step back and I think, oh, 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 genius. That is abject genius. I mean, how wonderfully skilled of a, 
of a debater he is. And when you, when you watch Jesus, when you watch him teach, when you listen to what he has to say, it's utterly astonishing. But when you watch him die, when you watch him die in my place, That's beautiful. And when you and I come to the place where God is not simply useful, but that He is beautiful, then the soul, the soul will not forget those benefits. soul will relish them. Come now, soul. Bless the Lord for all his benefits. And they are numerous. Our Father, I, I do pray that you will become more and more beautiful to us as your people and that what we will find growing out of those souls is not a um, not, not so much a duty, although duty is good too. But what is growing out of that soul is a life lived because we're captivated by the beauty of what is now ours in Christ Jesus the Lord. Father, for those you've led here this morning who have never yet, never seen Jesus and what he did is beautiful, who have never seen that that what he did at Calvary is essential for their deliverance. Would you show them that now? Would you show them that this is not, that Christianity is not a religion that restricts one's pleasure, but the work of Jesus Christ is the thing that ultimately sets us free? Would you show us that, Lord, in a new and a fresh way? Do that. For Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray.